Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Okay, before we begin our introductions, and I know that uh, Bruce, Chris, and Rebecca are here for the first time. Is there anyone else joining us for the first time? Great, welcome. Welcome to you. Okay, as always, we're going to go around the room and just say our names. <coughs> Take a little time in between so it doesn't seem like roll call. Uh, if I may, I'll begin. My name is Roy. I'm Bob Sidokan. I'm Bruce. I'm Roger. My name is David. I'm Joe Good. My name is Bonoid. Hi, I'm Tom. My name is Cass. I'm Chris. I'm George. Eric. Ian. Paul. I'm Jack. I'm Michael. I'm Paul Shepard. My name is Oswaldo. My name is Pete. Anthony. I'm Andreas. I'm Daniel. My name is Marty. I'm Jerry. My name is David. James. My name is Colin. My name is Brian. My name is Jerry Jones. Hi, my name is Bruce Jones. <laughs> Peter. Joe Castro DC. I think that's everyone except for Rebecca. You're about to get introduced. <laughs> 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 Rebecca Dixon, welcome to you. She's been a member of the Lesbian Buddhist Sangha for over 10 years. Her main teacher is Gil Franz Dahl at IMC in Redwood City, where she teaches their web courses and serves on the Chaplaincy Council. Rebecca lives in Oakland and has spent five years putting the East Bay Meditation Center together. Other highlights have been Spirit Rock's Community Dharma Leader Program. She's taught in jails in the Drug Court Treatment Program. Volunteer work with the Zen Hospice Project. Leader of a sitting group in Oakland that meets on Mondays. And she's also taught at the Alameda Saga. Welcome to you. Thank you very much. So would you like me to talk now? Sure. All right. It's really wonderful to be here. I didn't realize uh, the extent to which this morning, I, as I drove across the bridge, I was coming home. Um, and to be able to sit for this 30-minute period without leading the meditation was such a luxury, uh, <laughs> particularly in your company, because I felt my heart really, really open. Um, you know, very often when I'm leading the meditation and then I practice in between what I say, I'm very aware of mental activity. And today, since I didn't have to do that, I could be aware of my emotional activity, and it was pretty active. Um, 
I had decided, uh, talking with Roy, that um, my topic for today would be compassion. And uh, so I was sort of, you know, getting in touch with that and realizing how full my heart is, um, particularly coming, you know, to this group. Uh, here, here in San Francisco, and I go back to, <coughs> I go back to the '60s, the early '60s when I came out at the age of 12, and the word "gay" meant a kind of giddy happiness. That <laughs> was the only use that it had in the common parlance at that time. Um, I couldn't find information about homosexuality. <sighs> Things have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we went through the uh, the Briggs Initiative, that fight. Um, we've been through AIDS. We've been now, you know, good grief the right to get married. I'm married. Carla and I are legally married. And we, of course, you know, we still have to fight that fight. So I'm sitting here with this sense of not me, us. And it's so wonderful. Because I, I really felt like I've been a foot soldier in the culture war all my life. And, um, you know, and in a way, when I see it that way, the us opens up a little. Because I do an awful lot of teaching with your basic straight population. You know, a little bit of diversity sometimes. Sometimes I bring it from home because my wife is African American. But, um, I'm, I'm not always with us, if you know what I mean. And yet, you know, suffering is pretty universal. It may not have the huge identifiable precipitating events, you know, like earthquake and cholera in Haiti, but our heart's response is universal. The way we experience the suffering, you know, whether we're really, you know, wiped out in a tsunami or we flunked the bar exam or our partner has left us, whatever the precipitating cause. We suffer. And competitive suffering, you know, or comparative suffering gets us nowhere. You know, what what we need to do is to bring our whole hearts to that suffering. And hopefully with some wisdom. So there's a story of these rich guys who heard about the Buddha and came to him and said, we really like this nirvana idea, but 
you just really don't have the time for shaving the head and the bowl and the robe and all that stuff. So is there some quicker way to get to heaven? And he said, well, yeah. You know, there are these four uh, states of being that if you are in them, you will be living in heaven. They're the divine abodes of the Brahma Viharas. And they're loving kindness, which I think of as the prow of the ship. It's the direction we go in. We go toward treating everyone with an open, respectful kindness. And then compassion and sympathetic joy, which I think of as the oars, as we engage in this reality, when we encounter suffering, we engage with it with compassion. And when we encounter joy, we engage with it with sympathetic joy. And then equanimity is the rudder that keeps us balanced as we go through life. And if we can abide in these four states of mind or being, then we will be happy. We will have a very powerful emotional experience. But it goes, remember, it's compassion, joy. And I saw this over and over uh, in in the hospice. And before I went to do hospice work, I thought, pretty grim, you know, a whole lot of suffering, bedpans, vomit, ick. But I'll keep an open heart to that. And what I didn't expect was the amount of joy that was there. And I uh, was with a woman, my partner, who died of ovarian cancer. And going through day by day, it was suffering joy, suffering joy. Maybe a little more intense, but pretty much the same thing, that you're probably going to encounter today. Have wonderful coffee with a good friend, and you go out and find a ticket on your windshield. Joy, suffering, it's, it's right there, moment to moment. And, it, and the trek to compassion is, is the opening of the heart that comes when we let go of the difference between self and other. All four of these Brahma Viharas have enemies. They have the far enemy and the near enemy. And the far enemy is pretty easy to recognize. It's the opposite. You know, compassion is indifference. The far enemy of loving-kindness is ill-will. 
You you can spot that coming. The tricky one is the near enemy. And that's what it kind of looks like when we're all caught up in our own uh, interest, but trying to look like we're being compassionate. And that comes out as pity. Oh, poor you. Or actually, there's a, a way in which sympathy has this element of I'm feeling your pain and I really don't like it. You know, and so I'm sorry for you. But there's still this remove of it's your pain. And, you know, one of the things that was really wonderful for me uh, sitting here this morning is I know it's not my pain and I know it's not your pain. What we've been through as a community, it's, it's ours and it's also this universal experience. All human beings uh, have a rough trudge through life whether they're our enemies or our allies. And one of, the, one of the best ways to get along with the enemies is to recognize that. And then we can begin to speak the same language. And, uh, you know, it's hard. I mean, I, you know, Rangers, George W. What it's, you know, I... I can't totally let go of my combative desire to change things. But what I need to let go of is the sense that I am fundamentally different from the George W's of this world. Because I know everyone suffers in the same way. And don't forget the joy. If I close my heart to the suffering, then I lose the, the joy. I can't be there with that happiness that I was saying I found even in the hospice. I can remember my first visit to uh, Ward C2 there at Laguna Honda. And by that time, the hospice wards was not all AIDS patients. There had been this kind of originated during the initial stages of the outbreak, but then as treatments were developed, uh, the demographics of the hospice ward changed a little. And I walked in and in the middle of the community room, 
was an elderly woman with Parkinson's. And uh, and she looked really tragic. I mean, my heart just easily opened to her. Kind of bent and twisted in the wheelchair and not really able to move uh, easily. And, um, and yet as I walked toward her, I saw that there were all of these volunteers around her and talking to her and engaging with her. And they were laughing and she had a huge smile on her face. And I, I walked in with another group of brand new volunteers and we sort of joined the party. And her smile turned into a laugh. And I felt it so powerfully that I was able to share this moment of, of joy in the midst of life, in the midst of a life that includes so much suffering. So coming back to this near enemy of, of me, I, me, and my, it's there in every mind moment of our lives this me. It's built in, basically, to the way we see things. Um, And it's not going to go away. I mean, the practice is not geared toward getting rid of the self. It's part of how the mind functions. But we can come to see through it sort of like when Buddha was being tempted or taunted uh, the night of his enlightenment and he was visited by Mara which is all of the mistakes the errors the sources of suffering that come out of this delusional way of seeing things through the prism of the self. And what Buddha said was, I see you, Mara. I see that there is this distortion, and I can see through it. Jesus basically said the same thing to the devil. Stand behind me and don't push. Let me get beyond this self-centeredness and not be pushed around by it, not have my conduct ruled by all of the twists of thinking and emotion that come from holding this idea of self, of a separate self, as central in my life. We begin to break it down in this practice when we begin to train the mind. The mind wants to go where it wants to go. It wants to go to fantasy. 
a lot, or it'll worry, or it'll make plans, trying to avoid what it's worried about. <clears throat> and so we say to the mind, no, we're going to pay attention to this basically boring sensation of breathing. And a, a couple of things happen in that mind moment when we realize that we're not doing what we set out to do. Instead of watching the breathing, we're fantasizing. One of the first things that will come up is a sense of, I've done it wrong. I have failed myself. And there's this kind of self-punishment that will happen. If we can bring compassion to ourselves at that level, in that moment, we have begun to see through this all-dominating sense of separateness, of self, keeping us away from others. This is such a universal phenomenon. This untrained mind wanting to go to the candy of self-interest. And we can't scold it into submission. Well, okay, we can. Yeah, we can. And it's not pretty. <laughs> the results are not good. But if we can engage in that moment with compassion for ourselves and say, oh yeah, I have the standard issue human mind. And now I want to just invite the attention back to the sensations of breathing. And compassion is really important kind of as we go along further on our spiritual path, when we do this practice, we begin to see things. It's like snorkeling in the mind. And, and after a while, we begin to see things we don't really like. There are some kind of ugly, ugly things in here, or things that we think are ugly. You know, I, I discovered I'm a really mean-spirited driver. Uh, and I can be kind of, I can be real downright petty uh, about a lot of things. Um, I've kind of got the full menu of human faults. So when we see these things, it's really important to bring compassion to that moment. Because otherwise, we're going to lie to ourselves. We're going to say, oh no, I'm not really that petty. This is just this time. There are excuses for what I just did, or thought, or felt. Because we have this idea of self, and we really cling to it. And any, any mismatch, any failure that we see to be that self, we're, we're going to try to not see it or to excuse it or whatever. 
And the point is, we it will not progress. It will not grow and change and let go of its grip on us until we can see it clearly with compassion, with acceptance. This is sort of like, you know, accepting the George W. in my own heart. Because it doesn't live out there. It, it lives in here, too. And the funny thing is, you know, since I've been doing this practice, I have discovered, contrary to my previous beliefs, that there are a lot fewer jerks in this world than I thought there were. Uh, I, I, you know, I used to encounter them all the time. <laughs> Everywhere I went, almost everything I did. And I think the first clue for me was when I started to do um, smile practice. It was I was on this kick of generosity. And well, okay, here's. The truth is <laughs> that I was getting older and lines were starting to happen in my face and I noticed that the cheapest and fastest facelift I could get was the smile. I just simply looked better all right, when I was smiling. So I thought, okay, this is a twofer. I can do my, my spiritual practice and I can you know, look a little better in public if I smile. And so I started to try to, is, is that telling me to no, wrap it up? Hot water. Okay, good. <laughs> hot water is good. Um, I started to try to consciously take, uh, you know, this smile, this happiness uh, out into the public. And I, it started to occur to me that Oakland was getting nicer. But I didn't really get it until I was in a grocery store one day. And I was going down the aisle and I got to the end. And just a few moments after I went that way, a woman with a screaming baby in her cart and a, a struggling child by the hand came around the corner. And I happened to be smiling because I was doing this practice and her face transformed in just a second. She went from harried, just about to go postal kind of expression on her face to a smile. And I kind of looked around like, what did it? And I realized she saw my smile. My kind of cheating spiritual practice. It wasn't really there for her even. But it was this little gift that even unintentionally I gave her. And uh, you know, so 
I realized, wow, you know, there's so much that we can do for each other with this practice of compassion to, you know, even to share my joy on this very simple level of smiling, sharing smiles. And, you know, it's, over the years it's developed that when I do see the the harried mother with the screaming kids, uh, I will smile. I don't force it on them, don't look them in the eye and say, you're going to smile. But just letting my heart feel the compassion and the hope that their day will get a little better than it is right at this moment. You know, a smile comes onto my face. And it's amazing how many times it, it makes just that moment of difference. A lot of people asked me when I was doing hospice work how I could do it. How could I live with that five hours a week of uninterrupted suffering? And very seldom did they really have the time for the full explanation. But I appreciated the question because it helped me remember how much it nourished me when I opened my heart to the suffering uh, how much came with it uh, how much that was really beneficial because it opened the door of the cage around my heart and my mind and let me out of myself let me see through the distortions, maybe only for a little while. But, you know, for all of its defect, the human mind is pretty good at remembering things. And it can remember the taste of freedom. And by doing this practice, we develop the ability to come back over and over to that freedom. And inevitably, no matter what mood I was in when I arrived at the hospice in the morning, when I left in the afternoon, I felt good. I had engaged with people at a very important level for them. I had shared love. I had comforted suffering. And I had shared joy. And I had developed an equanimity that, I have to say, carried me through my own experience with the death of my partner. So it's... It may not be whatever nirvana is, you know. Maybe the shaved head and the ball in the robe is a, a better path. I don't know. I, there's no reason we can't walk both. And in fact, in most of the traditions of Buddhism, 
compassion is considered to be a prerequisite. It's a necessary capacity in order to walk the path. Bodhicitta, uh, bodhisattva path, metta practice in the various traditions. No matter how well we train the mind, if the heart isn't opened, we don't really grow. So, I want to thank you all for inviting me and making me feel so welcome here today. Uh, It's wonderful to be in this room with all of you and know that this is a a group of people not only closely akin to, to myself, but walking this path. And um, I do feel my heart really open. Wish you all the very best. So we do have some time for some comments or questions. If you'd like to feel free. a really good question. There's something unique about every wave in the ocean. There'll never be that wave again. But in a moment it's back to being the ocean. So, I mean, we definitely occur. We we are, you know, we are phenomena, we're happening. And nothing else really happens the way we do. I think the the best, the easiest way for me to think about it is that we think we're nouns and we're verbs. I hope that helps. (laughs) Helps me. Patience, I think, is the important thing. Just recognize that that's what it is. Being compassionate about it, perhaps. 
Yeah. <laughs> layer after layer. It's kind of the opposite, you know. I, I, I teach a lot of intro to meditation classes, and, mm-hmm. and people are astonished at how prone they are to judging themselves. And, mm-hmm. and I say, okay, well, now stop that. And they'll say, well, I can't, I'm just terrible at this. And I'll, I'll say, well, okay, stop judging the judging. You know, you can make the last judgment, but don't judge it. You know, just. And, and so compassion is sort of the mirror image of it. You just keep being compassionate. Thank you at the top. Thank you for reminding us of sympathetic joy, too, because I think I, I tend to forget about that part of it. And it's so rich um, in terms of teaching oneself how to how to be compassionate in a certain way. If you can feel the sympathetic joy with a joyful moment, it's a it's a real opener. It's a great big freebie. <laughs> yeah. I was uh, interested in what you had to say about that, the near enemy as opposed to the easily identified far enemy. And uh, wondering in the area of equanimity, the, the rudder of the ship, if, uh, if you could elaborate, you know, clearly not having equanimity and panicking uh, would be the uh, clear opposite. Any, any other insights that you can give us on near enemies? Yeah. The, oh, the near enemy of equanimity? Or yeah. any of the others. Well, the distant enemy of equanimity is um, that we just get totally caught up in things, you know. Uh, I guess I've I've gotten a little confused, and uh, I'm not quite sure. Which que- what the question well, is? Uh, 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 well, just in general terms, I, I thought that was a very interesting part of uh, what you were talking to us about. You because clearly there's the far enemies, the, the the total opposite, but the the involvement of the ego uh, in making that small separation when you really think you're doing yeah. the best for uh, this situation in reality, still not. Yeah fully open heart situation. The near enemy then of uh, equanimity is what a lot of people think Buddhism is about and that is when you don't care. You, you're disconnected from what's going on. And the truth of the matter is that with equanimity you have the capacity to feel even more. This is not a um, a mental life, uh, the spiritual life. It's one that's intensely emotional. Um, the 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 Pali translation of the word equanimity is here in the middle of things. 
And so it it denotes this capacity to stay balanced, to stay oriented in, in the middle of storm winds and, and uh, tremendous turbulence that's not going on around us, it's going on through us. I hope I got somewhere near your question. I was just thinking of um, trying to grasp, say, the suffering in Haiti, especially now with the cold epidemic. And um, when I start feeling overwhelmed and helpless, I think, well, what, you know, what can I do right now about that? And most often it's pray, you know, you know. I sort of dabble in Buddhist prayers and other prayers, and, uh, and if I could contribute something, I'm sure I could do that. But it takes away the feeling of helplessness because I can't go down there, you know, and inoculate, you know, a million people. <laughs> I just can't do it. You know, that's that's not my role, not my calling. So that helps me keep compassion without getting overwhelmed by it. Yeah. yeah, well said. some more about the East Bay Meditation Center. It's so close, but it's so far for some of us in San Francisco. <laughs> you know I feel the same way. <laughs> and I'm in Oakland. I helped get it started. And I left when it did. Uh, the main goal that we had uh, when we were envisioning it and pulling together our meager resources to try to get this idea going. And we had a lot of help from uh, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield and you know the, the many well-known teachers in the area. Uh, it took us five years to get a mission statement to, to make people aware that the idea was out there and then finally get some private funding and uh, open a place. But it was our, our, our driving idea <clears throat> was diversity. Um, because it's so lacking, has been so lacking in uh, Western Buddhism. And uh, in Oakland, it, it would have been um, a travesty to open a center that didn't have a diverse population. And after working on this idea for five years, it became really clear that it was necessary for the faces at the front of the room to reflect diversity. 
and they already had plenty of middle-aged white women. <laughs> they didn't need me even though I was a lesbian. <laughs> that, didn't, that wasn't enough twofers. <laughs> Plus, I, you know, I'd really had it with committees. <laughs> but they're doing great. I mean, they are actually living the vision. Well, and I'm exactly so proud of them. Where exactly is it? Well, it's on Broadway at about 27th. In Oakland. In Oakland. Hmm? It's a block from the Paramount. Block oh, from the Paramount, okay. You take Bart there. It's yeah, yeah, it's really, yeah. It's really easy. Yeah, stop in and meditate. And they, they, they have a night, a queer night on Wednesday, people of color night on Thursday, an open night on Friday, and they do pretty regular day logs. Okay. Um, and everything's by Donna. And they're actually looking at expanding the space, so in the next couple of weeks they're going to talk about moving upstairs into a larger space so they can have multiple events at the same time. Oh, great. Good to know. Well, Rebecca, we're, we're at that time. Will you be able to stay for the social hour? You bet. Yeah. You've great. got cookies. Absolutely. <laughs> and I invite Chris, Ian, and Bruce to join us too and hang out for a while and have a little tea. And speaking of tea, our host with the most. Yes. <laughs> Hi, I, I am Cass. I am your host with the most. <laughs> um, please stay and enjoy the fellowship of the Sangha. Um, we have tea and cookies. And um, if you do have tea, please wash your cup with hot soap and water. Um, there's a sign-up list if you want to get on our mailing list uh, over by that wall. And um, I'll be going around with the Donut Bowl. Um, please uh, feel free to open your heart and, uh, and um, donate uh, whatever you choose to help the Sangha meet its expenses. Uh, five to eight dollars is suggested, but it's completely um, at your... Uh, pleasure. Uh, so people go to uh, lunch around 12.30. Um, they gather at the front door. And uh, I think that's it. Thank you. Any other announcements today? Jerry? Uh, Rebecca, again, thanks for coming today. And I was so close, but so far. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also, our, next, our speaker next week is Eugene Cash. Anyone else? Wow. Okay, let's stand for our dedication to America. <laughs> By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the cause causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment, too much aversion, and live believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast 
like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.